Good morning, church. My name's John. I serve here at... That was really weak. Good morning, church. My name's John. I serve here as the lead pastor. Before we jump into the text this morning, I have a special announcement to make. We have hired a high school pastor. I want to introduce you to Carter McFarland. Carter is from Canada, made his way down to the States, went to Moody Bible Institute, and is currently finishing up his uh, degree at the Wheaton College Graduate School. He was hired last Monday and was at winter camp on Friday. So, Carter, welcome to the team. I'm going to take a moment and I'm going to pray for Carter and for his ministry. He is on the front lines of ministry work in this church, ministering to students, students in the church and students who are far from Jesus, who are a part of our ministry called Reckless. And so let me pray for Carter this morning. Father God, we come before you and I thank you for Carter. I thank you for his heart for students, for his call to be a pastor. I thank you that he is here and serving. Lord, I pray that you will give him many years of, of solid, fruit-bearing ministry here at Glen Allen Bible Church. I pray that you'll bless his efforts, that you'll give him wisdom beyond his, his years, beyond himself, courage to share Jesus with students. And Lord, I pray for us as a church that we'll stand with him, alongside him, that we'll go in front of him, that we'll go behind him, we'll go alongside of him to encourage him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You could probably hear a sense of not only excitement, but a little bit of relief in my voice. For those of you who have been around for a while, the last six months I have served not only in my role as, pa as a pastor here, but also as the interim high school pastor. Six months of, <laughs> six months of uh, dual roles. Let me give you a little bit of context. I'm 46. I graduated high school in 1996. I have five students in the ministry, one that serves as a college leader and four that are in the high school ministry. I am a horrible match for our high school ministry, but I want to tell you that it's been a joy to serve. It has been exhausting. It's been long uh, weeks and some late nights. And at the same time, just a great sense of joy to, uh, to serve our high school students and to be a part of that ministry. And incredibly grateful <laughs> that, that Carter is here to jump in and to take the lead uh, in this ministry. One of the exercises that we did with high school students early on this fall in a program that we call Go Reckless, and that's our Wednesday night Bible study. It's designed for students who want to specifically grow deeper in their faith and understand God's word more and apply it to their lives. So Reckless is a big ministry. It's lots of students involved, and this Wednesday night Bible study is designed to go deeper in our faith. And one of our first Go Reckless meetings, there's 52 kids crammed into a basement in the Wheaton area. And one of the things that we decided to do is we went with a theme called questions. And we decided that we were going to distribute three by five cards to the group 
of high school students and say, we would love for you to write on that card any big question you have about faith, about God, about the Bible, about how it all works, anything that you are wrestling with about the Christian faith. And then we're going to take the the fall and we're going to go through those questions and we're going to try to do our best to, to answer them as you wrestle through these things of faith. Let me share a few of those questions with you this morning. Why didn't Jesus just make everyone good instead of having to be killed for our sins? I'm taking these word for word from the cards that students gave us. I haven't done anything Christian in a long time. How do I get my faith back? Why is it so easy to ruin my relationship with God and so hard to get it back? I have really messed up in a lot of ways with God. How do I say sorry to God? Can you? Why are there so many rules to following Christ? The 52 question cards we got that night, here's a a sample of five of them. Now, as as fascinating as it would be to go through these questions this morning, the reason that I raised them for us is so that you can get a sense of the type of questions that our students are wrestling with. And if you you were to put a theme around these questions, I think we can quickly see that students, these students, are wrestling with the religious side, the the religion of the faith. What are the, the rules of the faith? What are the things that we're supposed to be doing? What's the system of our faith, and how does it work? Maybe some of us in this room have wrestled with that same thing maybe you are wrestling this morning. What are the rules of faith? Do they matter? See, throughout history and even today, we as the church have spent a lot of time working through the rules of the faith, created systems for our faith. Do this, do that. Show up at this time. Stand, sit, read this, pray this, behave this way, don't behave this way. Oftentimes, these systems or these rules or these guides of our faith create a tension for us as followers of Jesus. Because the line we read this morning as we welcomed and began our services that we are free. We are free indeed. So how do we live in this tension? This is what our students were wrestling with, and maybe many of us are wrestling with this morning, this religion versus Jesus. This tension or battle that exists. The truth is, is that this tension or this battle 
has been present and it actually arrived when Jesus began his ministry. It's been there from the very beginning. This idea of religion versus Jesus. Let's look at Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. We're going to be in the the chapter uh, Luke 15 this week and next week as well. So if you want to turn there this morning, let me read verses 1 and 2 for us. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You see, the religious culture in which Jesus was born into, which Jesus grew up in, and which Jesus was ministering in, was very, very restrictive. A very thorough system about who was religious and who was not. Who a rabbi or a teacher of the law could spend time with and who they could not. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law had created a religious system not based on the heart of God, but based on their own personal desires for power and influence and money. They had lost the heart of God. The heart of God is Love for the weak and the broken and the outsider and the widow and the orphan. All of these commands existed in the very early iterations of the Jewish law. And so Jesus was entering into a religious system with the hope to transform it, to reclaim it for what it was originally intended to be like. This is the scene that Jesus enter into, enters in. They saw Jesus, these Pharisees and these teachers of the law, Jesus, a rabbi, spending his time with tax collectors. I think Kelly talked about tax collectors last week and sinners. And they muttered to themselves about how off Jesus was, how non-religious Jesus was. And it's here we see right in the text this major difference between Jesus and religion. Church, I want you to leave this place. If you, if you don't hear or, or understand anything else that I'm about to say after this moment, I'm okay with it. I I want you to walk out the door with this understanding this morning. That Jesus, the man Jesus, welcomes sinners and eats with them. Every word of this sentence matters. Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them. Let me walk through it this morning. The man, Jesus, 
welcomes. Means he opens his life to the non-religious, to the broken, to the needy, to the sick, to the ill, to those who have wandered far from the faith. Sinners, tax collectors, those who are actually, who've actually turned their back on their brothers and sisters. Jesus welcomes them. He invites them in, opens his life to be with them. And more than that, Jesus eats with them. And this tells us something very profound about who Jesus is. And it tells us something very profound about how we are to live. Because when it says that Jesus eats with them, there's something deeply cultural happening there that I think sometimes in our Western culture we don't fully grasp. Because I had lunch with someone last week that I didn't even know. They emailed me and said, hey, I would love to meet with you. Would you be open to having lunch together? Totally. We go to eat. We go to coffee. We want to get to know people. We invite them around a meal. Now, food is a big deal in our culture. But it's also a way that we socially interact with lots of different kinds of people. A meal can be a way that we get to know each other. But in the ancient Near East, that wasn't the case. You didn't just have meals with anyone. Meals were a big deal. They're a way to show who you were. And over and over in the text, right, we see this focus on meals and Jesus at meals. There's these, these bigger events. They have major social implications. And so for Jesus to say that, for the text to say that Jesus eats with sinners is saying something very profound about who the man Jesus really is. And these cultural rules about meals, they don't necessarily exist here, but they exist in many parts of the world. Let me give you an example. When Carrie and I were newly married, our son Brayden was three months old. He's 20 now. We lived in Zambia for the better part of a year, serving as missionaries in Zambia. It's in southern Africa. One of our first evenings there, we were invited to the home of the director of the ministry, and we sat down to eat together. And you wash your hands in a basin, and there's a towel that someone gives you, and you dry your hands, and it's kind of a formal type experience. And then there's these these people that come out of the kitchen, and they're bringing like dish after dish after dish of all these different kinds of food. And there's meat on the table, which is a big deal because meat is very expensive. And we're sitting down and getting ready to eat, and everyone is dressed pretty nice. And there's these two women who keep coming in and kind of caring for us. And I said, Agnes and Judy, have you eaten yet? I quietly kind of, no. And the director says, no, they'll eat when we're done. I said, oh, no, bring a couple chairs. 
Let's have Agnes and Judy sit with us and get to know them a little bit. We've got this great dinner. It was the most awkward meal I've ever been a part of. Agnes and Judy could hardly eat. It was just this awkward scene. Guys, I, I think that that's probably what a lot of these meals for Jesus were like. This is awkward scene of people gathered that shouldn't really be together. And that's what Jesus consistently did. Let me give you, let me give you a cultural teaching moment. If you ever go to Zambia or many places in the world, there's sort of this understanding that you're supposed to eat whatever is put in front of you, right? Eat it all, whatever is put in front of you. That's not true the majority of the time because what's going to happen is the food that you leave behind is the food that the rest of the people in the home are going to get to eat. And so if you eat it all, there's nothing left. So often when I would travel places and they would bring these huge spreads out in front of me and you just eat a little bit because it shows that you know that others are going to eat what you don't. Let's just decide. Cultural moment. So Jesus welcomes and eats with sinners. Let's go back to the text this morning. Jesus hears these Pharisees and these teachers of the law mumbling some things about him and instead of attacking them and blowing up the situation he decides to tell a few stories to explain why it is that he eats with sinners why he welcomes them in and eats with them the first story and we call them parables I'm going to talk about parables parables here in a moment, but the first parable or the first story that he tells is about a shepherd, and this shepherd has a hundred sheep, and one of the sheep goes missing, and what does the shepherd do? He leads the 99, and he goes after the one, and he celebrates over finding this lost sheep, and Jesus says, This is what it is like in heaven for one sinner to repent rather than for 99 righteous people who believe and don't need to repent. He goes on to tell another parable, this time about a woman with 10 coins. And she loses one of these 10 coins. And she spends the night turning on the lights and looking for this lost coin. And then there's rejoicing when she finds the lost coin. And Jesus says, this is what it's like when one sinner comes to repentance. Begins to tell these stories about what the kingdom of God is really like, what the faith is supposed to be like. These stories are aimed to help people understand the type of ministry and the the type of faith that Jesus is bringing. See, the Pharisees had required a, a certain level of standing in the religion in order to be included. But Jesus does something very opposite. 
he actually goes after those who would not normally fit and brings them in. He sought them out, extended grace, met them in their circumstances, knowing that change in their life would come after they were welcomed in. They would be cleansed from the inside out, not the outside in. So religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. If Jesus says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. Then Jesus goes on to tell another parable. The people would have understood the the idea of a, of a shepherd, and they would have understood a, a woman, a, a widow, looking after just one coin out of ten. They would have understood these things. But Jesus, he goes a little bit deeper in the next story he tells. He goes right to the heart of many of the people there. And it's a, it's a story that connects even with our hearts today. The parable of the lost son. So we have sheep, and we have coins. And now, and now, now we have a son. Let me read it for us this morning. And Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, and he set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's, father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out, I will go back to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and put some sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. We, let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. P. 
people inside and outside of the faith say that this is perhaps one of the greatest short stories ever told. It's known as the crown jewel of all the parables because it so easily goes to the heart of the listener or the reader. Now, as I teach through this text this morning, I want to be keenly aware, and I want us all to be keenly aware that there are many in this room who have children that are living like the prodigal son. Children who have stepped away from the family and the faith. And as parents, you're desperately praying that they come walking back up that long road. And you want to welcome them in. I want you to know that this morning that Jesus knows the pain that you feel in your heart. And Jesus knows deeply the longing that you have to run down that road and to wrap your arms around that child and to have a party that they are back. And I want you to know that here in this room, as a body of believers, as this church, that we want you to know that we love you and we care for you and we want to walk with you and support you in that difficult situation. Church, it's, it's hard to teach and preach on the prodigal son without recognizing that this story hits hard to the heart. Jesus shares this story about a father and a son because he knows he knows the feeling that we have in this room right now that it creates a moment a tender moment in our hearts to understand who he truly is he is greater than any religion he is more loving and kind and grace-filled than we could ever imagine and so as we talk about this story this morning, let me share a little bit about some of the care that we need to have with this text. Because there's some certain ways that we could look at this text and try to understand it and apply it. And so let me just share some things that are potential pitfalls for us this morning. See, one of the things that we can be inclined to do with a story like this is we try to make it too theological. We try to make it too doctrinal. That Jesus here in this story is telling us everything we need to know and understand about salvation, about election, or about free will, or about all these big doctrinal things. And we need to be careful that we don't go down that path of thinking that this story— tells us everything we need to know about how salvation works. That's not the intent of the parable. Now another trap that we can go down is that we can allegorize the parable. 
We can make the entire parable this allegory where the Father is God. The ring and the coat are the coverings for the sin that we have done. The inheritance is our eternal salvation. Do you understand? We can, we can allegorize the entire thing and we can go too far with the allegory. The third thing that we can do, a third pitfall, is that we can moralize the parable. Where we make it a simple or single takeaway. Be like the father and don't be like the younger son. Don't be like the older son who we'll talk about next week. See, what a parable is. A parable means to go alongside. Parable, alongside. And so there's this teaching, this this understanding, this maybe it's a command from God or the law of God or the teachings of God. And, and in order for people to fully embrace them and understand them, it's helpful to create a story or to share a story that goes alongside of that teaching so that people can engage with it and understand it better. Because we are sheep and sometimes we don't fully grasp what's happening. And so our shepherd tells a story to help us get it. And that's what these stories do for us this morning. They aren't perfect theological. They aren't about an allegory, and they aren't just about a simple moral lesson. They're designed to help us understand the heart of God and the the messages of God and the teaching of God. Jesus is using these stories So that the listeners there, the tax collectors and the sinners and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, so that they could fully understand the heart of God. That they can understand the kingdom of God and how our faith works. How this whole thing works. See, church, the simplest and the most basic understanding of the story is that there are sinners, and that they are broken, and that they do things like rebel and wander. And sometimes they wander far from God, and sometimes they go into horribly dark places, and they do incredibly sinful things. But God, but God is consistent. God is the consistency through this entire parable. He doesn't waver. He looks hopefully down the road, ready to welcome back that wandering sinner. Church, this is what the kingdom of God is like. We welcome back sinners because that is who God is. That is what he does. In this parable, in this story, we see this graciousness of the Father overshadowing the sinfulness of the Son. And it's this memory that this boy has of how loving his Father is, how good his Father is, that brings him back home. 
If we think about this parable in terms of religion versus Jesus, I would say this. Religion says, I messed up. My father is going to kill me. What Jesus says, I messed up. I need to call my dad. Religion says, religion says you've got to do all these things. And religion says you've got to act a certain way, behave a certain way, that you can't ever walk through those doors of the church because of all the things that you've done in your life. I'm sorry. There's a, I have a prodigal in my family. And my brother. And it, I mean, you open this text and you, you can't help but see the heart of our God who poured out his grace upon us in his son Jesus. And we believe this, that we can't, we can't come into here, we can't be a part of things we, because we've screwed up or we've got sin in our lives or we've done things wrong or we haven't ever come. And I think of our students our high school students who, who think they've got to fix something. And the truth is, is that Jesus, who is clearly identifying himself with the Father in this passage, he's clearly saying, I'm like the Father, and my kingdom is like the Father. Church, he's just waiting, and he wants to run down that road and meet you in your repentance. And he wants to throw a coat of blessing on you. And he wants to give you a ring and tell you that you are a royal child of God. And he wants to have a party and celebrate you coming back. Church, this is who our God is. And he's done it for me. And I look around this room and I know that he has done it for so many in this room. He's met you in your brokenness and said, you are my son. You are my daughter. I love you. And that's the kind of church that we want to be. We want to be people who welcome in any and everybody who wants to know Jesus. He wants to make their way back to God. That's who we want to be as a church. Let me pray. Father God, we love you. And I thank you for this church. I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you that you are a loving God who runs down that road after us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing a few songs to close our service. Gary and Beth Larson are down front, or somebody else is down front. Gary's here. If you would like prayer this morning, uh, there's a number of things that might be stirring in your heart this morning. Maybe it's a prodigal in your life that you would like prayer for. Maybe it's yourself. We invite you to come down this morning and, and be prayed for. Let's stand and sing.